Hello, welcome to the Life Done Differently podcast with me, Neil Whitten, and my co-host Ray Richards. Join us on our journey to find out what separates the doers from the thinkers. Hello everyone, I hope you're doing okay in this new world that we find ourselves in. I, I fully understand that our own particular circumstances will play a big part in dictating the extent to which we're coping or otherwise with the COVID-19 world. Uh, there's so much to say and we'll get into all of that in our next episode and I assume those that follow. This is more to say that this particular episode was recorded a while ago before the pandemic became real for most of us. Uh, most striking is the thought of thousands and thousands of people taking to the streets to protest. Already un- unthinkable, that, that, that seems to me. Uh, anyway, close your eyes, you're going back in time. Our guest in conversation today is Claire Farrell, a leading voice of Extinction Rebellion and a lecturer in sustainable fashion, if there is such a thing at St Martin's College in London. Claire was a real joy to hang out with. Uh, But before I introduce Claire, actually, I must thank Justin, Charlotte and the team at the Artist Residence Hotel, this time in Pimlico, London, for once again providing us with a very cool space to natter. Uh, Back to Claire. Claire tried mainstream fashion, but she didn't fit in. Claire doesn't fit in, in so many ways. Claire's a rebel. She suggests that rebellion became a part of her when she moved schools and studied the same syllabus and sat the same exams two years on the trot. Uh, And Claire, because she was bright, got very bored and that is what bred rebellion. Well, I'm sure that year shaped Claire, but I have very little doubt that Claire was born to be a rebel. Her childhood was characterised by instability and change. She learned to cope with the unknown and as an adult with her own mind she's still unafraid of the unknown she is unafraid of the consequences of her actions because she's experienced the likely consequences before and survived being arrested doesn't faze someone who spent time in the notorious top shop hilton claire's childhood doesn't seem good enough to me i think she deserved better She's worked hard to understand what happened. But what occurs to me is that this not good enough childhood might just be the very thing that's given her the ability to shock, to wake us up, to help us notice. In her work with XR, the job is to wake us up to what's happening to the planet. It seems to me that the risk is too great for no action. Hindsight will not be an option. And why not work together to clean things up? And if you got the skills like Claire, why not shout about it? Why not shout about it if that's what you do so well? Anyway, enjoy Claire Farrell, Rebellion. So we are sitting in the artist residence in London. And this this is way too plush for all of us, really, isn't it? Well, it's all right for me. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) feel very out of place <laughs> we need to say thank you to the artist <laughs> residents for giving us the space um we do maybe we'll say we'll say some more about that in the intro but uh claire thank you again for taking the time um this is us trying to understand a bit more about um 
your world and how you fell into this world. But I, but we try, we, we tend to start with, um, if you have to describe yourself to people today, how do you do that? How do you think of describing yourself to people? I don't know. I, it's difficult because I, I think my sense of identity has been somewhat um, wrapped up in um, my work, in being working in fashion, in always uh, being somebody who seems to sort of push against what most people think is normal in various ways. Um, and right now I'm in a position where I just, I said to you earlier, I've given up my studio, so I'm not practicing, I'm not designing anymore, I'm not doing that work. And I think when, you, when you're a creative person for your profession, you quite often sort of identify as that yeah. thing, as a creative person that does that work. And it is quite strange and interesting to not be doing any of that. And I, and I wrote an article recently about the fashion boycott and I nearly called the fashion industry my former industry. Interesting. And then I took out former because I was like, my industry, which it, it kind of has always been partly, but like I've never belonged in it. So in that sense, I sort of guess my identity is in a state of flux in some ways. Good, where well, you're in the um, right place. <laughs> <laughs> you're in a nice safe space here with people that understand what that means. You, so, But it sounds like there was a point where you would maybe have described yourself as a fashion designer yeah and, and how recent was that and also i suppose an educator i've always been teaching for a long time on f uh, sustainability and fashion issues as well as kind of looking at ethics and things um well i was still working in the industry about two years ago okay um freelance so not like i haven't had a full-time um proper job for a very long time thank god um <laughs> but uh, i don't like that term proper job also <laughs> but also running small labels with you know ethics and the environment at the sort of heart of the purpose of them okay um, which i did for quite a long time as well so that was your entry point to the world of work if we call it that to growing up and working out how you exist in the world was was your entry point through fashion and through sustainable fashion yeah, well, I think when I was a kid, I really liked dressing in a certain way, okay. quite particular about getting dressed. And my mum, I think, said to me at one point, like, you know, why don't you design clothes? And um, somehow that sort of like planted a seed in my head and then I did follow that up. So I remember from from when I was sort of early teens thinking how am I going to do this journey I'm going to go and do like a levels I'm going to do a foundation I'm going to go to art school I'm going to go do a fashion degree I'll have to move to London to do that the whole uh, thing was kind of like planned out but I think when I got to fashion school and found the essence of what we were dealing with was actually often felt it extremely vacuous and pointless <laughs> um, that I tried then to think about what would give that meaning and I already think I was um, 
an environmentalist at that point um, because I was very interested in science when I was at school. Mm. So that's when I started sort of looking into the impacts of what I was doing and it led on from there. Can we just understand more about that feeling of this being vacuous? So uh, you, you identify as it, uh, from a young age, like the creativity of what, of what we wear and how we define ourselves through, through what, we, what we wear and how we present ourselves to the world and see that as something that you're innately interested in and then decide that that's a good path, a good journey. But then you get to a space where you think this is the right place for you to be and you find that actually what you're being taught and what you're... Um, what you're being pulled towards is a world of consumption and a world of um, that, that has its own set of ethics wrapped up in the creativity of it. Is that fair? Yeah, kind of. I think also people's obsession with, um, you know, status and exclusivity and stuff is just never really totally appealed to me. Mm. And that, is obviously sort of like embedded in the fashion system. And when you study at a good fashion school, in quotes, good fashion mm. school, um, a lot of them are very good that train people to work commercially, but they don't get that sort of like inverted commas good attached mm. to them often. Um, but when you go to a place where you know it has this like great reputation for turning out people that make great work, they were at that time, I mean, it's more like a, factory now going to art school unfortunately poor young people but but the but then the this course was that i was on was like 30 people max i think we ended up like only 20 or less would graduate so such a horrendous experience really? trying to like go through the process and then at the end the target would be to like get you to go and work for a house so we you know we were trained with that like aim high go and work somewhere really exclusive you know, these are the people you want to go and work for and the places you want to go and work. And by the way, you will never get paid unless you're <laughs> um, able to work for free for quite a long time and suffer a great deal in the sort of like working environment and the and the working sort of culture of our industry. And so, yeah, it, it kind of, it, it was a process of going through that degree of, of being firstly treated really, really badly, in my opinion, by some of the people that taught us. Um, in the name of toughening you up. You know, mm. it was like sort of, we're gonna break you and then we'll build you back up. It was really, it was really that mentality and a sort of reinforcing all the time of saying to you, well, this is what it's really like. This is what it's really like in the real world, you know? And I remember somebody's parent getting like in a car accident and going into a coma and the tutors on our course saying that they didn't think that that was a reason to give her extra time, for example, on a major project. Wow. And then saying things like, this is what it's like in the real world. Wow. And it's like, well, it's fucking not, is it? No. <laughs> it's just not. Or it, but like, or it doesn't have to be. No, right. But young people don't understand that. So if somebody's going, this is what yeah. it's like in our industry and you've got to toughen up and it's going to be awful, but it's worth it because you're striving to have this status. I mean, most of the people I know who've been like, way more successful than I have in my industry who are like, you know, in their mid thirties, got a great career, have worked for loads and loads of people that people dream of working for. They've got all of these names, all this success under their belt. They make a really big salary and they're just looking at their career now. I mean, they've only been doing it for like 15, 16 years. And they just think it's a load of crap and they're so, going, how can I get out? So you saw, you saw that really early and good for you because you, you <laughs> managed to kind of take, take a different path. Um, you talked about, 
always having an affinity to science. And do you remember moments uh, when you sort of showed up at university and you felt like that was where you needed to be? You talked about how the t how the, the tutors responded to your friend's parent being in the coma, but where was the breaking point? Where was the point where it's like this is not this is not where I need to be. This is not this is not for me. This is not for me. And and uh, um, what I'm thinking about is that I, I guess other people maybe had the same feeling, but didn't act on the feeling. So it's taken 15 years, and now they're looking back, and this doesn't feel right now. What what do you remember moments where you were starting to go that this is this is this is not my path? Well, there's one of my long-term friends who I met in the first year of university who now lives in Denmark, and he um, only did the first year, and that's when I met him, and then he dropped out because he was um, about 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. um, and he just thought, like, God, these people are full of shit. I can't stay. So he left. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm quite interested in in his path because he's, he's like a... I mean, he's like a queer activist and has, like, been running a... a a live art venue in Copenhagen for a long time and that's done that's been something which is equally like my path kept them poor and feeling fairly good about themselves at yeah. the same time um and doing something that they feel passionate about and, and enjoying their work and me meeting amazing people you know um and where, where were you what, what university Middlesex <coughs> Middlesex fashion department um would you have ever thought of that guy as a mentor uh, Christian, um, I think in the first instance when I met him, I thought he was a bit, um, at the time he lived with his partner, who was also called Christian. Um, oh, great. Wow. And um, their birthdays were either side of my dad's birthday, very close together. And so I was like, oh, you're a bit like my sort of like gay dads in <laughs> London. Because <laughs> they'd lived here for a long time, you know, so they knew their way around and all this stuff. Um, so, yeah, that was that was, uh, that was was like a really brilliant friendship. Your Christian gay dads. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, he, but he helped you see something. So you, Well, you, no, you, I don't think he helped me. I think it was just that, like, in retrospect, he was right and about a lot of it and he could see it because he was a grown-up do you yeah. know what I mean he was yeah, a, yeah. he was an older person we a bunch of us arrived in in London with you know very well limited life experience you know and and I would say also that I personally arrived here in a, in a state of um very serious trauma mm. and the year previous to my arrival in London was I can't, I don't, I don't even, I don't really have any words for like how horrendous an experience that year was really in total. Um, I mean, it was just feels when I look back on it, like it's a sort of extraordinary series of events. Do you but, mind taking um, us through it? Well, so I moved out from living with my stepdad who I had a difficult relationship with and in those days to go to an art foundation year, you could get a bursary uh -huh. if you lived far enough away from the nearest college that offered it. So that was cool. So I got a residential bursary, which was, I can't remember. It was, it was like my rent was covered. And then I got a bit extra each week in cash from the desk in the, in the, in the office. And, um, I think my rent was 25 pounds a week to live in a terraced house in Middlesbrough, in central Middlesbrough. Lovely. 
And at that time, Central Middlesbrough felt quite dangerous. And um, when I moved into the house, uh, I moved in with two girls that I'd been studying at sixth form with. And I really talked them into it, even though they didn't need to move out of their home because they actually had uh, a much more... Um, they had a much more nurturing family experience themselves that they that they both lived with their mums. Um, and I just said to them, look, you, you will qualify for this bursary, so why don't you just get it? And then you'll have somewhere to stay in central town. So, you, you know, you can move in. And then if you don't like it, you can just as well move out. But, mm -hmm. like, I need some people to live with. Mm. <laughs> nice sales um, <laughs> So What is there to argue with? You'll yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we were, I mean, we were great friends. So they moved in with me uh, originally. And then I had a boyfriend whose parents had a pub in, in town. And so he came and stayed with me quite a lot. And I would never let him move in. <laughs> Um, and the girls basically like one of them got pregnant and the guy like did a runner on her eventually and she moved back home to her mum and the other girl uh, split up with her boyfriend who was a gambling addict um, and she moved back home to her mum's house to live with her brother and she left this guy Craig living with us um, because he needed to live near town because he sold his car and he had loads of debt and he was he was just always in loads of trouble um and the series of events is quite sketchy but basically i lived next door to this guy called steve who used to be an armed robber and when i got le locked out of the house um you know he would like let me in and have a cup of tea or whatever and he was just a really nice guy. <laughs> um, but he had a load of kids that like had been taken away. He wasn't allowed to see them. Um, we had all these like long chats and eventually then he moved out and he said, um, just be careful uh, when I move because the landlord's brother is gonna move in and he's tried to uh, rape his brother's wife and he's really fucking weird and um, don't like let him in the house. Don't talk to him too much. And so shortly after he moved in, um, he would like be really pleasant to us in daylight, say hi, all right, and wander off. And then when it was dark, <laughs> he used to like crawl around in our front garden, climb on the roof, watch us through the windows. Oh, no, that's horrible. Um, all this stuff. I mean, it was, yeah, there's more, but anyway, <laughs> that happened, and I went and reported it to the to the police. And um, because he hadn't done anything or broken anything, they were in those days. You had to queue up in front of like a line of people in hmm. in front of everyone and, and tell the people on the desk what you were there to report. And they sort of looked at me like, "That's not a crime. Like, hmm. what are you what are you talking about? We don't care about that." <laughs> um, so, so yeah, and then and then further one door away. Again, there was like a heroin dealer um, who uh, had a heroin addict who lived with him who used to come and sort of like uh, knock on the door and ask for like the contents of, an, of ashtrays and stuff. Um, and he'd come around sometimes very high, very happy, wearing a new pair of trainers, whatever. Like obviously <laughs> things were on the up and then other times he'd come around and he was in a terrible state. His girlfriend was prostitute. Um, this was all like going on at the same time as like the guy that he lived with who was a heroin dealer had at one point had his front door 
firebombed. He had his windows put through. He had his front wall rammed down by someone in the night in a in a Range Rover or a van or something. Um, and so it's an extremely like unstable place to mm, live. Mm. And because of my relationship with my family, I felt like I just couldn't go home mm. because of the way that I'd left. So you had to stick it out. And yeah, and when I look back on it, I think the you know the the, the trauma of living with that level of um, fear and mm. unease and not being able to go back to the house basically by myself ever by the end of the time because yeah. I didn't feel like it was safe. Uh, that's what I moved from mm, <laughs> when yeah. I when I moved to um, London to do a degree. Yeah, and so you were, so quite, you were so where, where was Where was home originally? The northeast was where I went to secondary school, but I was actually born in Devon and before that, and then in between I'm, I moved in the northwest, so okay. I moved around quite a lot as a kid. Yeah. So what, what was your... It sounds pretty um, chaotic. Mm. Uh, what, where was the stability coming from? I don't know, really. I don't think there was much, to be yeah, honest. And that's, that's really hard when you haven't got anything stable so you know a lot of people even if they're in that environment as you say they've got a family they can go back to or feel able to go back to that wasn't necessarily your first port of call for stability yeah I mean I didn't my dad was really old so he um was 62 when I was born he fought in the second world war right um my mum was like half his age and So there was a massive generation gap between Mm, me and my dad. Um, A a lot of members of my family found him extremely hard work and uh, he was a very difficult character in some fronts. Um, Was he he around a lot when you were young? No, we left him when I was about six. Okay. So we like basically ran away from him. Mm. uh, You and your mum? Without telling him. Mm. And my mum and my stepdad told me and my brother lies, basically, that we were going away to um, the northwest for the summer. So we put as much as could fit in a transit van and left and then never went back. And that's how I first moved away from from where I'd grown up originally, which was North Devon. Mm. And then... I'd say after that, like my trust in my family was decimated and it was never repaired. Because because the truth wasn't told to you. Yeah. About And you can't lie to kids. No, sure. Like no. people really underestimate children mm. uh in in a in a way which I think is detrimental to the whole of society, mm, actually. Yeah. But you but I remember saying, Oh, I don't think we're coming back and having and being lied to. Do you uh, so do you do you look back on it and understand better the decisions that your mum was making for you? To try yeah, and totally. You and my all the rest of it? a friend of my mum's told me some years ago that like he was drinking too much, yeah. and you know she she left because it was it was an unbearable relationship to be in, and I know my my dad did drink a lot. Um, so, but when but when someone says oh. You know, she actually did leave because he was an alcoholic and he was driving around with you guys in the car mm. with a bottle of vodka in the car. <laughs> then you think, oh, right, okay, you know. And it, I mean, yeah, there's and, many and did, horrendous and 
but very funny stories I could tell you about <laughs> my dad. But um, but I think from that, just to go back, like the 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 trust that I had with my family was sort of really really broken, mm. and then um after that my dad played a little violin all the time poor him you know so he was sort of like telling us we should feel sorry for him my stepdad didn't have any respect for him because my dad wouldn't pay his child support because we'd left him in that way and blah blah so the I don't know how the divorce went really because I was very small but I imagine like not that well mm. and then my dad wasn't really that helpful so um so the relations within my family were really really strained and um and then we moved and then we moved again and it was very much upheaval in my education, which was the only thing that was like this, the good thing about um, being that young person was that I was I was good at school and everyone would say, well done, you're very good at school, you're doing really well. Yeah. And that was always something that was like, well, I'll just keep doing that then. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Because that provided you some and stability. Yeah, and, 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 and somewhere where people would say, well done, you're good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so, and so that was really the, sort of my focus. And then having been moved and moved and have your education also like turned upside down and inside out and sort of messed around with, there was just nothing, there was just no continuity. And then... No. And then for my mum to get really sick and realise that she's got a severe form of cancer and she's going and she's looking like not very good. Um, what age were you then, Claire? About twelve, I think. Okay. Um, and so to feel so much frustration towards your your parent who you, who you live with, and plenty of frustration for the other parent that you don't live with, mm. but you can't live with anyway because he's an old age pensioner mm. um it really took for my mum to get really ill for me well to have cancer and know that she might get really really ill to cut through all of that sort of frustration um and anger basically like as a child I was I was angry about the way they treated me and then the sense of powerlessness and the sense of like people not considering your well-being when I mean, of course, they were considering that, but I didn't understand that because no. nobody spoke to me about it properly. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so then I had this like brief sort of period of time where I'd sort of gone into an automatic state of forgiveness, really. Um, and and then just like, yeah, watch my mum get really, really sick and what, die. What do you mean, an automatic state of forgiveness? Well, like when she got really ill, I think something inside me just said like okay well you're not angry with this person anymore because they've got an illness which yeah. could kill them so so you you can get over it you're compassionate <laughs> towards your mum yeah yeah so it's like okay well very quickly yeah you, you get over it you know and uh because it's the right thing to do yeah and that i mean it just happened you know it wasn't a choice i just that's just what happened yeah um and and similarly like after she died i i very naturally felt like i went into a state of i mean it's quite nuts really when i think about it, being a 13 year old kid and going into school and just yeah. think having thoughts like every day that i go to school nothing that happens in this building is ever going to fucking matter like mm. it literally doesn't matter mm. yeah because it could go well it could go badly no one gives a fuck like you might die next week. Mm. That's it. So you was, have that. Yeah. Was anyone looking after you? Like anyone in the system, anyone close to you? Well, no, I had this like grandparents who were in like on the South Coast. So quite far away. My mum's parents. Uh, 
And we kept in close contact with them, spoke to them all the time, but we didn't see them very often, see them a couple of times a year. And came in touch with my dad on the phone mm -hmm. and that was it. And then just lived with my stepdad mm. who obviously was like, in the, he'd just lost his mum about six months previous to this. So he was in, he, I mean, you know, bless him. He was really put through it. And my my mum and him had had a baby uh, when we lived in the Northwest. So my little brother is like six, seven years younger than me. Mm -hmm. So I also kind of inherited a mother yeah. role yeah. in the home, you know, at that point. And um, a lot of my friends used to say to me, oh, you're like a little mum, you know, you go and like pick him up from the after school club and mm. take him home and spend all your summer holidays, like taking him to park or taking him shopping or And how doing did you stuff. feel about that at the time? Or was it not, you didn't think about it, it was just something you had to do? It was just something that we had to do. <clears throat> yeah. And... And I loved him a lot, you know, yeah. I do love him a lot. Like it's taken a long time for him to become a brother really yeah, for me right. because yeah. I was, we had a, we had a sort of mother child relationship for a very long time actually, yeah. um, which is also quite interesting. And when, when did that stop? What age were, what age was he? Well, he moved to London around the time when my dad died ish, quite close to, and he moved into my house. So that was quite cool to be able to give him some space to sort of land, mm, you know, yeah. and have a safe place to live. And it was cool for me to have him around, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then that probably lasted for about a year or or more until we were sort of do, did each other's heads in. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow through that process, we spent like more adult time together, if you know what I mean. Whereas before that, when he came to visit me, he was always like my little brother, like, you know, yeah. he's a bit yeah it, it sounds like in so many ways you were forced to grow up really really quickly so yeah. by the age of 13 certainly 16 certainly 19 you'd probably experienced so much of what many people might not experience until they're you know retired and 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 really in the later stages of life or never or never potentially yeah and do you recognize that yeah, I guess so. It doesn't feel like, um, it didn't really like strike me as <coughs> that, as what being what it was until I think I've had like a lot of therapy, yeah. <laughs> which I have had now. Um, and I'm a much, much better version of myself for it. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's like having that time and help to do that reflection mm. on like what it means to have been through these things has been really helpful because you know that you're not like normal in inverted commas when you live through this stuff when you're young, but also like it is the only thing that you know. Mm. So you're like also have that, I mean, child psychologists will tell you like when, when bad things happen, children often blame themselves, right? So your parents get divorced, you run away from your dad, somebody gets sick and dies, blah, blah. Like there's enough there for me to have as a young mm. person felt was like partly my fault mm. and you sort of tell yourself these things i really remember it really clearly as a as a really young person like this is happening because you deserve it and then and then thinking about all the things that you could do to harm yourself thinking about all the things you like you know thinking about jumping out of windows and thinking like you, you definitely can't do that because the people around you have like 
suffered enough mm. already. Do you know yeah, what I mean? You're just going to be adding like, to them. But it's but it's fully on your mind that like this is partly your, f- your what you deserve. It's partly your fault that it's happened to you. Therefore, you must be quite bad. Therefore, you can like be really, really mean to yourself. Mm. Inside, in, internal thoughts can can become quite challenging for a young person like that. So I think, and in that in that being normalised, I think that carries you something really challenging mm. to overcome in adult life, which is like just to learn to care for yourself, just mm. to learn to like look after yourself properly, or be kinder to yourself, or you know that that idea of sort of allowing your sort of inner parent to like face you rather so than a, always face outwards so that to, kind of to stuff. really be a mentor mentor to yourself yeah and have those two sides and and, and yeah <clears throat> it's really really difficult and i yeah. think we're, i think you know i think our society is 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 riddled with with ex- similar experiences basically of people not having any idea as a young adult how to be an adult <laughs> if and, that and makes if sense. you hadn't if you hadn't have had <laughs> the therapy you had lots of therapy over a a number of years 10 years 10 years okay (laughs) if you because a lot of people don't do that do they no they don't they don't have those conversations they don't face it yeah they uh either they don't face it they don't know it's available Mm. they misunderstand what it is they see it as a sign of weakness yeah i thought all those things yeah what, what, but you what, still did it. Yeah, what, you still what, did it. What made you yeah, do what, it? What gave you the strength to I, do it? Well, I went. It wasn't strength. It was desperation. Was it? And okay. I think that's quite often the case, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, I mean, I know an increasing number of people who I've, who I've really fucking love, who uh, have done like 12 steps programs, who've mm. gone clean. And the same with a lot of those people on those kinds of journeys. You know, they, they do that rock bottom thing mm. and then they go, okay yeah. enough you know it's interesting isn't it mm. you know, and and uh i mean of course i know loads of friends right who've got like who've had major addiction problems when you say um, of course what do you, why, why do you say of course i just think um i just think that there's there's been a correlation between some of the people that i've been extremely close to and the and the level of sort of like common understanding of um finding life extremely difficult Mm. and some of the people that i know very well who i would describe as being those people um you know i know their stories as well and they are also really harrowing (laughs) as young people and i think um you know childhood trauma as i understand it is is one of the main indicators of whether or not you're likely to have addiction problems, sure. right? Yeah. And yeah. like that, you know, that just seems to me that's what research is showing us is that like if children don't get really traumatized, they're much less likely to go but, into that space. Mm. But wh- why were you, um, why were the people around you also people that had had childhood trauma? I don't know. I think we sort of appeal to each other. You un- <laughs> understood each other? Yeah. You, so it was a language I think thing? so, yeah. You yeah. could communicate in a way that you couldn't communicate with other people because they wouldn't understand. Yeah. Well, yeah. maybe. But also, I don't know, just... I mean, people who are fucked up are quite interesting, aren't they? Oh, gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> but may- maybe it also means um, that you're looking for something that other people don't need to look for or they don't know that they need to look for. Does that make sense? So 
um, you would it sounded like for a long time you didn't have like a stable foundation you didn't have kind of that that sense of home that sense of a place you could go to to feel like you were sort of safe and um, that's really hard I mean I think the truth is for most people there that place doesn't really exist but it feels like it exists. Yeah, and it's and it's a sort of horrendous fantasy that you grow up right. with. Right, I completely thinking agree. Thinking like everyone else has got this thing that yeah, I don't yeah, have, yeah, yeah, yeah. and okay. it's bollocks. And it it's can like just disappear. <laughs> it can just disappear it's in an instant, true. even if even if people deeply believe that it's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and so I guess with that, your perspective of the world and why we do what we do and what matters is going to be radically different to most people. Uh, and maybe those other people that y- you found that had also experienced tr- childhood trauma had this different perspective on the world that was a shared perspective. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the effect of g- going through all of those things that we, that I've just described, and. Um, some things that I've left out, <laughs> which I won't go into, but like this, there was much more. Um, that the the result was that I was um, I was very reckless with myself, mm. and I think um, when I think back to myself as a sort of young, early twenties or what I mean, the situations that I would be willing to put myself in you know, the, the, the appetite that I had for like, I mean, it's like unimaginable kind of like energy to like go out, party, dress up, do everything all the time. Um, and at the same time with this kind of like slightly careless attitude towards my own well-being, (coughs) um, you know, resulted in, in, in lots and lots of things that were, like impossible to keep going long term mm. and presented myself with like issues of of uh of being able to sustain who I thought I was supposed to be for the people that I knew and the and the circles that I was in and all of that kind of stuff and then eventually um feeling at the end like towards the end of a of a long term relationship with um a guy who was gay <laughs> Um, then really feeling like I'm getting to the, I'm getting to like an edge here mm. where I'm like, I'm the not, e- the end where, of that, where I'm that like, chapter. where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not all right mm. right yeah. now. And people have been telling me for years, oh, you know, you should have had some therapy or you should have had some support. You should have had some counseling. I used to be like, I fucking need that. Like mm. I should just be fine. People should just be fine. Like that's weak. That's for like people that are fucking crap that can't mm. deal with their own shit. And look how far I've got. And I'm so totally independent. And like, you know, I don't need anyone. Don't need anything. Blah, blah. It's all this like stories that you've told yourself in order to like survive, which is super amazing. Because they work so well. And they got me where I got. And uh, I think I'm, I could have gone many other different directions than, than the way that I did go. So they did serve me really, really well. But they got, they got in the way of like, doing anything differently where you're sort of going, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And so the, and so I got to this point where I thought, I am actually quite fucked. And then I went to see this woman, this therapist, 
who had been recommended to me and I'd been putting off calling her for ages because I thought it was like sort of shameful and awful and weak and all this stuff. And I went to see her and it was really like, you know, I don't want to deal with all that other crap, fucking go back to your childhood, it's fucking, it's a mire, like, don't want to go there. Just How do wanna, I just move on? Just want to yeah. deal with what's in front of me, right? Yeah. Which is that my boyfriend is gay, I'm really unhappy mm. and, um, and I just feel really fucking angry and sad and like I don't, like I almost can't cope with what's going on. And um, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's must, I wish I had a recording of it, to be honest, but absolutely hilarious to watch, well, <laughs> watch myself back, yeah. go into that room and just, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, look, I don't want to do all that stuff. It's fucking digging through the past. It's like, it's all behind me, blah, blah, blah. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like 10 years later hmm. i'm still um speaking to the same person actually and she's she's she's, she's, oh. a, she's a hero she's like fucking brilliant and yeah and she's been really really kind to me good for um, you that's great to hear that that's come that's come from it yeah it's amazing and she's very supportive of what i do now hmm. she's like spoke to me for free on the phone when i was on hunger strike checked in with me and stuff you know she's like really supportive of of the work that i'm doing and has has made herself sort of extra available at certain really difficult times for me, which I really, I've got so much like respect mm. for so, her. So, so that, that period where you were, my words, not yours, coping with chaos is quite a, it's quite good to be able to cope with chaos. Yeah. And, and you, you, it sounds as though you explored that two feet in the unknown to use our language for quite some time and almost it almost became it became normal by sounds of it but eventually you worked out that it wasn't what you wanted longer term and i'm trying to understand what why why you could cope with it You'd done it for quite some time, but it wasn't your future. What, what, what really happened? I don't know if I really understand why you made why you made the phone call. If that was the turning point, was that the turning point? Talking to somebody about it all. I mean, it was a big turning point in one aspect of my life, but. In terms of what I do with my time and how I've sort of like directed my energy, at that time I was already working for a small brand that my friend had set up, earning very little money, running it off a shoestring, you know, trying to work like as ethically and sustainably as possible within the industry. So I'd already bailed on the commercial fashion world and made some quite sort of interesting choices mm, basically yeah. um and when i was at university i got told by the guys that were running the course that basically nobody gave a shit if something was organic because you can't see that from the catwalk and nobody will ever care about that mm. which i found really um offensive <laughs> on many levels um but anyway, I wrote about like the impacts of our industry from again a quite fairly sort of scientific like fact based perspective um 
and but then I decided that I should really work commercially because I was really conscious that I didn't have any experience and when you leave fashion school you basically don't fucking know anything mm -hmm. you know you've done three years worth of cutting patterns making shit putting together little collections doing this doing that and I just thought I'm like I'm basically still an idiot in this industry so I'm there's no way that I want to go and like be in charge of anything right now I want to go and learn stuff and I felt like the industry was so big that the best thing to do could be probably to go and work in the beast and so I went and um, got some jobs working in supply and working for companies that produce things for high street companies and the first one that I was at was like working for a really nice person but also like the boss was a total asshole. I still have fantasies about walking into his office calling him a dickhead and walking out just saying fine I just needed to get that off my chest Robert um, <laughs> um, <laughs> the people who I'm the, sure there's a lot of people out there that uh, I've never have burnt, similar fantasies I've never burnt those bridges Robert um, if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> you're That's an absolute felon really yeah. um, no well he I mean he said things he said amazingly awful things to me as a young woman you know like I went into the workplace and he said to me one morning in a, and he called me into his office and when your boyfriend wakes up in the morning does he does he look at you and think he's on a bad acid trip wow. and it's like is that something that is acceptable to say to like <laughs> to like a 22 year old 23 year old <laughs> member of staff I don't think who's... it's acceptable to say to anybody well no exactly <laughs> um so he uh, you know he was he was quite a, a a gross person but he wasn't as gross as the big big boss who tried to like get me fired for laughing too much one day I mean it's just like beyond anyway um I left that place my actual boss was very sweet there Lee I loved her um but I left that place and I went to try and move on and I went to this like other supplier that made jackets, um, leather and fake fur and fake leather and mm -hmm. stuff. And it was, and it was, I only worked there for about 11 months. And um, I mean, the, the management there, the guy who owned it was, um, shortly after I quit, I found out that he died quite, quite fast. He got really rapid onset cancer. Um, so, um, so sorry to everyone about that because I thought that was actually quite sad even though I just couldn't tolerate the guy any more <laughs> when I left. It was really um, it was really an extraordinary way that they treated their staff and um, in this tiny design team who got regularly sort of like hauled up and told that you weren't doing a very good job and they were really concerned about your output and blah, 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 blah. And in order to be able to give you all a warning en masse so that they were like laying the groundwork to be able to fire you because... They felt like they needed a new team. And when I came in, I got sold it as from an agency. It's a really good opportunity because, you know, they're starting a whole new team and you can be part of this whole fresh setup, blah, blah. And it's like, the reason is because they like routinely just fire everyone oh. and start again, um, again and again. And the guy that ran the company was just, I mean, you know, he, he, was an, he was an old guy. He didn't know anything about what was fashionable and he would say to you, oh, I don't see why you want to make this thing. I don't like it. And it's like, that's literally what everyone is going to want to buy off you. Like if you won't let us make a version of this denim color leather jacket, that's just come down the runway this season, you're not going to get the orders for it from all your customers, mm. blah, blah. And there was one day when I went in and everyone was ill, somebody had like bird flu and somebody else had been on holiday for two weeks. And, I'd had like gastroenteritis and eaten anything for three days. And I went into work because I just knew it was like nothing was getting done. And I was really concerned. No one in there like holding the, the main client's work. So I went in to do some work and he just came in, this guy, 
I'll never forget him walking in and saying, like, basically, you're all just doing crap behind a desk. You're not doing work for me. You're not making the collections that I need you to make. I don't know what you're doing. You're just fannying around on your computers. All the computers were locked down, by the way, so you couldn't, like, open your personal email. You couldn't open Facebook. You couldn't open anything apart from work. And... um and I just was incensed and obviously really hungry mm. and exhausted. I just couldn't handle it. So I just stood up and was like, I just don't know why you treat your design team like such a piece of shit. Like it's really offensive. And all we're doing is trying to like carry your company. And, and have things changed since then, do you think? What do you mean? About the way <coughs> the industry treats. I don't know. Because it's a long time. So that was the last job that I had in supply. So that yeah. was that. And you walked away from it and you were like, this is... Well, I sat down and I was kind of like shaking and like feeling like really stressed. He wanted us to empty a cupboard that had loads of old folders with old samples in. And stuff. I mean, it was just like he wanted us to do this pointless work, which we didn't have time for. We were really busy. And um, and so I just, I just like sat down thinking, oh God, what have you done? And uh, he went off into his office and about... A little bit later, he came out and he was quite sort of like an angry looking. And he said, Claire, can you come into my office? And he sat me down and he went, oh, because obviously by this time they've already warned the whole team. So I'm thinking like, oh God, he's probably going to fire me. And he went, we've been reviewing your work. And I just went, there's no point having this conversation because I hate working for you. <laughs> he was and probably then, just about to give you a promotion. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> and then he was like, oh, right. And then he said, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do about that? And I was like, well, I was going to just help these people empty this cupboard, which is like the most pointless task ever. And then I thought I'd probably just not come to work tomorrow. And he was like, well, you can leave now if you like. And because he'd been sued so many times because he treated staff so badly, he, ha he paid me off for two months mm. in the summer, which was perfect. And that was it. And I've never worked in commercial fashion since, like in that, in, in that area. Mm. Um, that was the last full-time job that I had where I wasn't like self-employed or trying to do something helpful, you know, it and, felt. And the way you felt about the situation, how did it differ from the way other people felt about their situation? Or do you not know? Did you have those conversations? The people that I worked with? Yeah. I think they all just felt like they had to take it. And you didn't? I just couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but I, I, I yeah. suppose I don't understand in a way because you, you you've got used to chaos, you've got used to difficult environments. You were very good at coping, but something's starting to change here that you're unwilling. Well, and to and cope anymore. Maybe just to to jump in the you mentioned earlier that you had this scientific mind and that you were thinking about things like sustainability and organic products and that wasn't cutting through and so i'm sensing that this undertone was there for a long time and it's and it's maybe just getting bigger and becoming more of a thing and you're not being heard plus this place isn't your home and these people don't respect and understand you so it's like a culmination of things and i guess to what degree did your attitudes towards climate breakdown and sustainability how much were they playing a factor at this stage quite a lot because I think it's like really as a fashion professional who's cares about the environment you're you're in this position where you're trained to love the 
product and the materiality of it mm. and have a massive respect for it. Mm. And then when you go and try to work commercially, you're told to make it out of like really crap materials, take off the details that make it special to make it cheaper, undermine everything about it that you've been taught to love in order to be able to produce it. Mm. And I've described that period of my life working in supply as making shit clothes that I don't like for companies that I don't like, for markets that I don't like, for probably customers that I that I find it difficult to respect because of their shopping habits, mm. quite frankly, and for management that I find absolutely sickening people. And so with all of that <laughs> put together, mm. it was quite difficult for me to tolerate being in that work. Mm. And I think when I left that job, it was like, I can barely handle this anymore you know like that's what really made me sort of explode that 11 months when i worked there felt like about five years mm. it are, was are you, so awful and are you glad you did it or not yeah i guess so because you learn stuff yeah about and you learn you learn what you don't want in your life yeah, and I also learned what I needed to learn about, like, I, you know, I understand how factories work. I understand yeah. how commercial and, and processes work. Just rewinding, I think that's what you said. One of the reasons you wanted to go into it, to get that experience. Yeah. So it was helpful and tough as it may have been. Uh, and, I, you know, I've done lots of jobs where I just I absolutely hated. But I'm really glad I've done them. Yeah. Really glad. Well, the way you just described the industry was it would be difficult for somebody outside of the industry to be able to see it in those terms that simply, yeah. which might, that might sound odd, but that I think that's real because it's not until you're in it where you can suddenly see, well, this is the way the system works and it doesn't feel right. And we were talking before we recorded about where art and creativity plays. And it sounds like your entry to this world of fashion was, was, was really pure and simple. It's just like, creativity and an outlet for your art and um yeah. and an identity and suddenly you, you put that into the world and it's something that's quite pure and quite simple and suddenly it moves into this system of um commerciality and and suddenly the art almost disappears it's almost the opposite of art isn't it in so many ways yeah in a way and all but also like i did i didn't do that well at university because i i just wasn't really very good at making things that looked and felt um convincing yeah <laughs> i would say and the more time that i spent looking at the way that you work in commercial fashion the more i realized that it wasn't it wasn't how i'd kind of approached it probably from quite a weird from from more of a of a fine art mindset or something some some like other kind of like approach which is like a weird cross between like design and art which are i see as quite two quite different um fields in in lots of ways but the but the if you're trying to make something sellable you're quite often just trying to make it look really convincing and that's what and that's what i've saw people doing in that in that part of the industry and and the more you get like into it and understand how like trend prediction works and how people don't need to like have a moment of inspiration or do some interesting research it's all kind of like on the internet and you just click through and there's like three different stories and different color schemes and you're going to fit this boho thing or you're going to fit this futuristic thing or you're going to do this minimal thing you know this cowboy thing whatever like and they just it's just a churning 
machine. And in mm. that time when I was in it, it's, it's, it's become faster and faster. And I think it is sad to watch the fashion industry basically sort of like run so quickly that it's like eating its own ass. Mm. You know, it's like it can't get any faster than eating it is at ass. the moment. <laughs> Um, and that's where the and that's where the play between the business comes, you know, where you look at like the commodification of creativity and the and the rapid pace of like, you know, growth based neoliberal economics. I mean, the whole thing is just like a fucking shit show. It's yeah. disgusting. And and of course, along that whole journey, you you ultimately end up learning loads about like the the abhorrent like social injustice, which is endemic in our industry and in which it's actually built on i mean it's built on slavery it's built on colonialism it's built on the british empire going to india and like breaking weavers fucking fingers so that we can have them their industry so we can make their cotton and sell it back to them i mean people aren't having these conversations about like what the root causes of 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 the sort of oppressions that are really present within the fashion production um supply chains are but uh, i don't think but um but, you know, it's still built on post-colonial and neo-colonial sort of mentality mm. and, and slavery. And there's child labor all over it. You mm. know, people think that this shit has gone away, but it hasn't. So, yeah, if you're if you're not moved by the <laughs> scientific reality of like pollution and poisoning people and climate change, which I actually do find really emotional subjects, but some a lot of people don't then there's plenty of like human suffering to to witness as well which i was later to learn about because my first thing was science really was the sort of environment in a in a technical way mm. um so yeah it just becomes something that you look at and you think how can i how can i be part of this it's so it, it, you mm. so having woken up to some of this stuff <coughs> you were then it sounds like you're maybe exploring is there a way to operate within this system where you can be true to your values and you can uh you can design fashion in a way that feels good for everybody involved and my guess is that you that 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 you you recognize that this it's actually the system that's broken you could say so so it was this the point where you started to then consider like wh where should your work be well i think it's that sense that makes you that has made me go, okay, well, I've tried really hard to change my industry and I obviously can't because it's too big and entrenched and the people who try to do it aren't really trying to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's still really disingenuous. I mean, I think sustainability is a load of old crap and people need to get over it. It's just absolute bollocks. Um, In what way? It's not real. <coughs> it's like it's not... It's not possible. Like there isn't a sustainable way to make fashion. Because the model example, is that you have to keep paying everybody. It's it's partly to do with the word fashion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. not it's not like you know you could talk about sustainable ways to clothe people. They wouldn't involve a garment trade mm. the way that we have it. There's no there's no way it can't be done. You know, big companies like H and M put millions of pounds into like supporting people doing innovation work around like how to green 
the fast fashion industry and it's a joke because it can't be done because of the word fashion because and you, it, it, yeah because it and changes. also it's an oxymoron yeah it's totally and yeah. it, and it, and that's kind of why it's so interesting right because it's yeah. like it's like a harsh place to be because you can't do anything right for doing something wrong and that i think that's in some ways well, what about if something i found interesting about it but what, what, what if what if it was fashionable to be sustainable what if you mended your clothes well, or re or reinvented your clothes well that's what we're sort of working towards partly with part of the project with with um extinction rebellion but um but interestingly i think looking at a system that you think well there's no way i'm going to change that and i've been trying for ages i've been educating i've been talking to people in the workplace i've tried to do things at work but i've never really been important enough to be able to change big things um so there's a sort of bigger systemic problem so instead of trying to fix the fashion industry why don't we try and like overhaul the whole social and political paradigm instead? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that'll be easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but although, let's, go although, for the low, let's go for the low so hanging that's fruit. What we, that's what we're doing. But although that sounds, although it is laughable, but at the same time, it, in many ways, when you look at it, um, when you just pull it apart and look at it on its merits, that's probably the logical answer, isn't it? Because because if you can if you can do something more radical around removing fashion and ultimately you've only fixed one part of a broken system because that system doesn't just exist in the world of fashion it's part of wider capitalism and as you said before around the way that these industries have sprung about and what people yeah. care about the fashion industry is like rooted in all those social injustices that I just mentioned but it's but it's also it's also sort of like you can never get it apart, really, from the fossil fuel industry. Mm. And you can never get it separate from agriculture, either. It relies basically on those two things. You can't make any fibres without either growing something, be that an animal or a plant, or by like getting oil and turning it into polyester or mm. nylon or whatever. Mm. And so, because you have this like necessity of extraction and the reliance on those two industries which also like lean on each other really heavily because a lot of the agricultural chemicals are you know from petrochemical companies as mm -hmm. well then you have to like look at that and see how it's like not an industry that exists separately as the thing that we see that we think oh that's clothes that's retail we know there's a man or a woman on a sewing machine behind that if people are really thinking about it, they might know that there's a weaver or a spinner or a knitter, a factory behind that that's making the cloth. But that's probably about as far as it goes. And when you and when you understand that this is like international commodity trading of cotton, hmm. you know, that's that's right there in the background of all of this stuff. It's um, it's quite obvious, really, that you can't fix it. With that, you know, because it's, it's it's tied up with everything else that's wrong about our economy and about destructive nature of our capitalist system that we've forced onto everybody all over the world. <laughs> yeah. So, what what did it take you to? Uh, <coughs> so, you're you're seeing all of that and connecting the dots, and then starting to recognise that maybe there isn't a place where you can fill. That you're 
playing the best part knowing all of this stuff but then that's the that's the same for every, for lots of people right lots of people probably make those those assertions and uh and then just go along with it anyway just rationalize it in whatever way they they do but you didn't you you stepped aside and then you set up a different identity and then and then took on different work what what do you what do you attribute the that to you like what what can you can you can you take it to a is there a moment is there is it a build-up of things is it other people that you met well I think my dad although he wasn't a great dad in lots of ways he gave me some really good advice which I don't remember getting very much of that when I was young mm. and he told me when I was young if you do something that you enjoy then you'll be good at it and that's what you should do in your life and um good advice it's quite good advice isn't it, it is. for like a sh crap dad <laughs> sorry dad yeah uh, he wasn't that crap yeah you were a bit crap um um but yeah but that's banging advice isn't it mm. and uh to be honest like i'm not that good a fashion designer mm -hmm. like there's much better people than me out there um i'm quite a good product developer like technical stuff but um but I think I sort of felt like it was also partly like an uphill struggle, like trying to exist in that space and trying to be a designer and also feeling so constantly sort of so compromised by everything that in, in that work. I think that helped me very mm. much to just be like, this is just really difficult. And and trying to like, what I saw is like people climbing a ladder and then sometimes stamping on people's fingers that were like climbing up behind them. I just had no interest in being part of that battle, especially knowing that there's loads of people that I just know are like better at it than me anyway. Mm. So it's like constantly fighting to try and be by be really good at something that you're not really sure is 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 that easy. You don't think you're like excelling at it and also you kind of hate the context mm. of what it is and what it's for. Um it definitely but sounds like a sensible decision. At the same time as doing this work with that supplier that I that I walked out of, I was whilst I was there, I was managing an account with Topshop, and at the same time as managing that account, I also was like organising a protest in Topshop, um, which it was kind of like pre-digital social media stuff, really. So. Uh -huh. I mean, now I guess it would be more likely that somebody might see you. Some We had a photo in the Independent, but I was like, no one in the fashion industry reads the fucking Independent. <laughs> so like, <laughs> not that part of the fashion mm. industry anyway. Um, so you saw so so, it 10 years ago, something like that? Probably more, yeah. About, I think probably this was, you're talking like 2007, okay. eight, something like that. But I was part of this um, activist group called the Space Hijackers which I'd like met somebody, been introduced to them like when I was at uni. And it was like an activist group that was based on the situationist artists. And so it was it was kind of partly an art project. Oh, okay. And so also it's a real blurred line between where it what it and, and also yeah, partly a, a, a bit of protest, yeah. you know. But it was very creative and um a lot of it was was very focused on presentation of yourself and people and what how you dress to go to a place mm. so we um used to play games of cricket as like protest and everyone would come in cricket whites you know and um and uh and there were other things where people would dress all in a suits and go we 
people hired like a car parking space to turn it into an office to do all these letters to send to MPs and everyone showed up with a table everyone was in suits everybody dressed appropriately for the for the thing they were there to do and um and so we uh, I don't know if you've heard of buy nothing day but it's like an international day of like respite from retail supposedly um it's very hard to not I buy bet, anything yeah. for a whole day especially when you live in London because as soon as you leave the house like you know transport 10 quid just falls out your pocket <laughs> yeah, somehow yeah. you know it's like but um it was partly founded i think by a performance artist called um reverend billy and he's uh, based in new york he's amazing look him up he's he's a dreamboat i love him and he's been like performing Is he actually as a, a reverend n- i don't believe so okay. no. he's a he's a performance artist definitely but he's been a reverend for like well over a decade okay. i don't know how long has a gospel choir all this, I mean, uses the power of gospel to really, like, drive things home. And I've been in, like, sermons where he's, like, exercised the evil out of people's credit cards and snapped them up in front of their face <laughs> and, like, stamp on them on the floor and stuff, Brilliant. you know, and, like, baptised my friend's kid and, like, tried to bless him to be, like, um, immune to advertising for the rest <laughs> of his life yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like this. You know, it's a beautiful beautiful piece of work that he's been doing ongoing for years and um and he was part of the team i believe that were like behind setting up by nothing day and we saw our sort of like missions as somewhat sort of partly aligned the space hijackers were definitely a part of like that anti-globalization anti-consumerism kind of like mid-2000s like early early 2000s kind of movement uh that was happening you know simultaneously all over the world and um <clears throat> that was the buy nothing day thing that we did was was um we used to do we did a a thing called a half price sale um day where we all like every, so they printed up some t-shirts and we went out in big groups and we'd wear these t-shirts set everything in store half price today and go and like flood shops on <laughs> mass, like leave a couple of people outside with all your bags and coats, and then everyone just pile into the shops. And we got into like the window of the Apple store next to the latest iPod, so you can like tell how old that is. Um, so hold on, just so I've definitely got it. You, so you've got these t-shirts that say everything's half price. You go into the shop, and then people like flood the sh- the store because they think everything's half price no we flood the store with people wearing those t-shirts so they have like people stood at halfway up the stairs facing the front door get people in the window yeah and get other people walking around like refolding clothes yeah. or rearranging the stock acting as if they work there basically this is, yeah but you're you're you, what so you're doing is completely tr- disorientate the people yeah. in the store and sometimes get some very confused responses from the shop staff mm. like oh, we don't really know what to do but you you can't stay here doing this because it's really confusing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and other places, you know, being like forcibly removed, basically. That must by have been a lot of fun. Security staff. Yeah, it was hilarious. I mean, we did so much stupid shit this place hijackers. It was really fun. It was really, really fun. Um, but the following year, because some people got banged up in Topshop doing that um, action. When you say banged up in Topshop, they weren't actually <laughs> held prisoner <laughs> in, yeah. to, in Topshop. Yeah. Not Top in Topshop. Shop. got cells, right? So... I mean, they're not, I don't think they're real cells. I think they're like lockable <laughs> rooms, but um, I didn't get put in them. 
But um, a bunch of people got arrest got arrested, kind of by the shop staff, and told so you've got to you come and you've got to come, and we're going to hold you, and we're going to call the police. Right. Okay. So the people who they'd like put in these rooms was like, well, thank God you're going to call the police. Cause it's fucking illegal. You can't lock me in a room <laughs> for wearing a t-shirt that's like annoying you. You know. Yeah. Um, and obviously the police came and said, well, there's nothing we can do. These people are like just wearing t-shirts. Like you'd learnt that one before. There's no- <laughs> um. And so, and so that was like the following year we decided we'd try and get sent to the Topshop jail again. <laughs> we wanted to do something to annoy them enough that they'd put us all in the cell. And then we had like a sound system in a backpack that we were like going to have a party. So it was called <laughs> like, what do you call it? Like Topshop, Swap Shop, Jailhouse Rock, we called the action. And the plan was to go and meet a certain time on the basement floor and wear clothes you don't like anymore, that you don't want, and just go down and swap them. So we met at a certain time. And then everyone started getting changed and swapping clothes and in the store. Plain clothes security came yeah, over, yeah. yeah. And um, they didn't want to swap clothes. They told us off, and somebody was like trying to take his trousers off, and they were like, "Stop it! You're gonna get down to your knickers." Like that to, <laughs> to a guy. I was. I mean, it was very funny, and everyone, you know, it was very irate people. But we didn't get sent to prison in Topshop. We got like kicked out. Um, and then, cause, but then because we had a sound system, we could have a party in the streets and we go and have a party around like near Covent Garden or Carnaby Street and tell people why it's by nothing day and why they should stop shopping and have a party and have a rest and like, you know, just I, I, I went go to the home. supermarket. <laughs> my, 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 my most rebellious <coughs> streak was going into a supermarket and not putting my stuff in plastic bags, just taking it off of the belt and putting it straight in the trolley because uh, I'm thinking, oh, well, let's just conduct an experiment here, see what happens. And I knew what was going to happen, and it did happen. So I'm wheeling the all my shopping out of the um, supermarket. And, of course, just as I'm about to put it into the car, the words got around, and this security car's puffing and panting. And <clears throat> it's very easy to confuse people by doing something different. Yeah. Well, and that was the idea of the situationists, was like we live in the society of the spectacle. And so if you disrupt the daily life of people in a way that they're not expecting, you can sort of like shake them awake mm. for them yeah, to go, what, right. am, what yeah. am I actually doing? Yeah, Hang yeah, on a minute. Why are we yeah. doing this? Why do I walk around this way to this thing? Why yeah. do I do that? Why because, am they, I... because they spend their days on autopilot. Mm. You know, and we all do. We all do to a certain extent. Um, but it sounds... Uh, all, all, what I'm mostly getting from you is that you're... You are a rebel, aren't you? I mean, you, you, you're yeah. You're probably never going to stop being a rebel. No, probably not. No, <laughs> and but as you say it, rebel sounds like a bad word, but it's not necessarily. No, no, a bad I, word. no, I don't know. I don't mean it's a bad word at all. I mean, I, I, you know, if you don't have rebels, you're you're screwed, because everybody will sleepwalk into. That's right. Um, and you need people to wake you up. Do you know what I think is part of it? Is that when I was saying when I was a kid, I was really good at school. And that was like the thing everyone said, well, well done. You're doing really well at school. And like, obviously, the more challenging the circumstances became, the more mir- miraculous that came to like the adults around me that knew, knew my backstory, right? Yeah. That they were like, but you really are still doing really well at school. And yeah. that's very impressive. It's not like you cry all the way there <laughs> and all the way back and all the time at home in the bedroom with the door shut. But like whilst I was at school, I was fine all the time um there was something that happened like before i moved to the northeast 
which really I think made me really rebellious, um, which was that I was supposedly like a bright young student and I got recommended to go to this like grammar school. So I did the final year of a preparatory department at a grammar school in the Northwest because that was an easier way to get in. Mm -hmm. So then you find it much easier to pass the entrance exam to get into the big school afterwards. Because you're coached. Yeah. And so going from a normal secondary school, from normal primary school into that environment. And I remember going there and I'd already moved schools quite a few times. And I just thought, you know what? This is like great because I'm going to go somewhere where the work is actually hard, where they give me books that are hard to read, blah, blah. So I was quite like excited to go there. And then I went there for a year and was like the skint person who had the wrong bag and the wrong recorder and the wrong uniform and like everything was fucking wrong. You didn't fit in. And previous to this, actually, my mum had always dressed me in quite weird stuff for school. So like if it said a blue jumper, sometimes I had a turquoise one. Or when it said to have a summer dress, sometimes I had a blue and white stripey one, not so a checked one. So she had a bit of rebel so in her as well. I also like was always like a bit wrong at my other schools, but I was more wrong here because <laughs> everything was the same mm. at this grammar school. And then... Anyway, I'd like pass the entrance exam for the next year, but they tested out SATs for the first time ever that year because they were going to put them into work the next year. And they gave them to the private school system to test to see if they liked them. And they tested them on a year younger than you would do in a state school. So when I went to year seven, when we moved to the northeast, I didn't just get pulled out of grammar school, told that I couldn't have my assisted place and that I couldn't go to this like school where I was going to do this work that I was always told was very good because I was good at it. Then I got like put back into the state system and that year they put the SATs out and they didn't rewrite them. So my year seven of secondary school was doing a whole year of work, which is identical to the year before that I'd done that I'd been like accelerated forward to do. And then the exam papers were word for word the fucking same. So if you want to turn a bright child into someone that causes loads of trouble. Yeah, do that. Do that to <laughs> yeah. them when they're yeah. 11. I mean, that's like, I think that's fundamental to like why I am the way I am because at that point I was like, fuck so that, this. So that, that, so, <laughs> so that was the, maybe the point where you started to realise that the system is a little bit... Well, more than a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Fucked. But and but, also you would have felt completely powerless. So it must have been stupidly frustrating, but you yeah. felt powerless to the system. Yeah. So the only option you've got really is either to conform or to rebel. Well, and also just not being challenged. You know, I just wanted to learn things. And I was told that that was really good and that was the best thing about me and to go and do it and to go and do it more and to go and do it more and to be sort of like told that's a good thing. And then to just have like the opportunity to be intellectually challenged, taken, ripped out from underneath you at the same time as you again leave behind all your friends again move Mm. to another side of the country again go to a place where everyone's going to like rip the piss out of you because you've got the wrong accent and they think you're a bit posh or you're a bit this or a bit that i mean i spent my whole time in the northwest trying to sound like i was from bolton and then (laughs) moved to the northeast and thought i really sound like i'm from the northwest and everyone went you sound well fucking posh like that and i was like oh god this again you know it's just like constantly sort of contorting yourself to try and fit in (laughs) So yeah, it's it's just uh, I think that's like really a fundamental thing is uh, about my ex- experience of being a young person that sort of made me. I mean, I was just unable to behave mm. at and, and that you, point. And, and do you at any point since have you ever thought right? Okay, this is quite tiring being a rebel. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I fancy I, a holiday. Uh, well, I just, I just want to, I just want to fit in. You know, <gasps> I just want to be like everybody else. I want to get myself a Labrador um, <laughs> and find a nice, nice three-bedroom house, terrace house, and just tend to my uh. garden and, you know, prune the roses at the right time. Um, no. Not really, no. Is there a part of you that would quite like it? I don't think so. There's a part of me that's quite into like being domestic. Okay. That I think is like not everyone always sees. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, being domestic? Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, increasingly in the last couple of years, I've not spent very much time at home. Mm. I'm without, I'm like hardly there to cook. I'm hardly there to spend time to relax. I don't watch telly. I don't have. A, I gave up telly when I was like twelve or something, and never went back. Um, which is also quite weird, weird thing for a 12 year old. Yeah, yeah. But me and my mate were like, we went on a TV amnesty and like put ourselves on a diet where we weren't allowed to watch it. And then we just never went back to it. So it listen to the radio and like do things with my hands at the same time and see mm. that as getting like, getting like something bang for buck or so. I don't know what it was. It was just Come like, on, let's it was just what we were like into. Let's get to it. The domestic but, side. But what, the domestic how? thing is like, you know, I really like cooking. Yeah, okay. I really love hosting people. I really love like feeding people. Yeah, I really love having like a a, a tidy place to live where mm. I know where shit is. And quite often, there's periods of my life where I just can't be at home enough. Yeah, to keep it like all making sense around me, you know, like that kind of stuff. So, and I think the the increased desire to sort of like spend a bit of time allowing yourself to relax and. Yeah. Decompress. walking a dog or whatever has like that stuff has definitely i understand myself that i like that yeah much more now than i did yeah five, th- ten years ago and do you think that's an age thing or do yeah th- totally yeah and also that sort of like desire to go out and just party and get wrecked and like be reckless and not know where the weekend's gonna take you and all of that has sort of melted away yeah so like i mean i remember towards the end of a week getting like a feeling that uh, i've got like some level of anxiety in my body because i know it's nearly the weekend and i don't know what i'm gonna do and i don't know where it's gonna end up and mm. i know loads of people who say the set exactly this because this stuff you know it's like you take until wednesday to recover yeah. you'd go out again on thursday mm. night and then friday night and then saturday night and then everything was like written off and then monday would be hard tuesday you're on like suicide watch and then wednesday you've sort of recovered and then thursday you're like go for some drinks and then friday it's weekend again so this sort of this this (laughs) this stability you know the the known is becoming more and more important but you've still got the ability obviously to step into the unknown yeah but you're you're starting to find a bit more of a a balance. Yeah. Yeah. And coming back a bit, you said about the best bit of advice that your dad gave you around, you know, if you if you're good at something, then do that. And you step out of the fashion industry, but you've got this side project going on with this performance art, but this meaningful performance art. How did that then start to play through to, uh, I guess, connecting this up to 
the the root cause of what Extinction Rebellion is about today. Well, there's something that I think has been really successful at the early stages of working on this rebellion, which is about being audacious. So I definitely can see the connection there. I mean, I wasn't... When we were doing the Space Hijacker stuff, I was I was quite wild and I wasn't that helpful. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I'd sort of join in and help with stuff, but other people carried that whole thing. Um, and I used to show up and drink beer and have stupid ideas, and sometimes we did them, and sometimes I was around. But, um, but it was not pointed at getting an outcome, which this work has been mm. very much about testing stuff, iterative testing out tactics, seeing what works, what doesn't work, what gets press, what gets you arrested, what gets you in trouble, what gets you in court, how much do you have to do to get a crown jury, all of that sort of like testing out of like stuff in the rebellion is very much as much as we try to be detached from the outcome, we have to be outcome focused when we're making the plans, right? But the space hijackers work was much more about like making a statement mm -hmm. and doing it with like joy and quite a lot of humor as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's, there's kind of, there's a clear link to me between those kind of, both those pieces of work and also notably that that both of those groups were not necessarily that well liked by the rest of the activist community mm. which is also quite interesting because space hijackers we made ourselves these badges once that said middle class art school wankers <laughs> that we could all wear because that's what other people were Thought calling were, us yeah. um <laughs> and um and it's interesting to look back at that and think like well, you know, in in some ways we're we're subject to a lot of the same critique with Extinction Rebellion because we've done some stuff which other people wouldn't wouldn't do, which they're like, well, I wouldn't have done that like that, and it's like, well, yeah, but but that's what we've done, and it's had this outcome, and we're interested in it, so let's not, you know, go down too hard on it because it doesn't sit with the you know the the sort of ordinary way of thinking in mm. this in this kind of sector so i'm quite interested in the in the commonality because there's a sort of audacity to doing something as full-on as like dropping the boat in the middle of oxford circus or p closing a bridge and covering it with 47 trees or um you know the hijackers bought a tank and um we tried to take it to outside the, the DSEI arms fair to do like an auction of it outside to show that there's an arms fair going on inside the Excel center. Which, Bought a tank. Yeah, well, like a, an armored personnel vehicle yeah. with six wheels. Um, and um, and later, a load of people were arrested with the tank at the uh, one of the G protests in central London, you know, the one where the guy died. No, I didn't hear about that. Oh, I can't remember which year it was. But it was the police were handling protests really badly, actually, at that time, in my opinion. They were kettling people a lot. Mm. They were handling crowds very badly. And there was a guy who was not who wasn't part of the protest. He got killed in the crowd in a in a in a crush. I think he got um trampled on. Yeah, okay. Um anyway, the on that day when the police were struggling so much to manage a big protest and did a in 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 some ways not a very good job of it, um, that was when a bunch of people, not me included, 
went out in blue boiler suits with the tank that they'd like painted a black and white checkerboard stripe down the side and the word riot on it. <laughs> and then they drove it into the city. <laughs> and um, I think 11 of them got arrested for impersonating the police, which was not what they were doing a mm. good job of by any stretch, which meant the case eventually had to get dropped. But and they and people got some compensation for that. But they were on bail, I think, for like two years for that. Um, yeah. And <coughs> two two um, areas that we haven't covered really, which we need to cover. I think each time we have these sorts of conversations, because listeners tell us that we need to cover them, <laughs> and we want we're interested money and relationships. And so, where does how do you survive? financially now if you're not part of the industry and and you mentioned your boyfriend to us before we came on he doesn't see much of you by sounds of it is that a good thing or a Sorry, bad thing Simon. <laughs> <laughs> um well so i teach still yeah okay and i have to say in, in fashion i i teach a sustainable fashion course yeah okay so, so at, you're helping um, people see Central the... St. Martins, which is a short course that I wrote with my old business partner like about 10 years ago. I've been teaching it for a very long time and it's like evolved into something much more interesting than what it started. Um, and I also do various bits of like guest lecturing. Mm -hmm. I think when I started to get involved with, well, certainly when I started to get involved with Roger Hallam and do the campaigning that we were doing in London before we launched the rebellion. I was extremely interested in the idea that you could sort of force a response from the state and you could use arrests in certain ways and you could go to court and plead in different ways and thinking about how you could take the sort of seriousness of the situation that we are facing uh, through doing that work. And I was really conscious that by doing that work, I might, um, that might have a negative impact on my only stable income mm. because yeah. everything else I was earning money from was like freelance product development, mm. um, getting things made for people, um, sometimes doing the odd sort of like bespoke thing, but mostly developing fashion product. And th the reason we ask the question if it's not clear is because <coughs> that's, that's probably the single biggest reason why people don't make the leap of faith, whether they, whether yeah. they believe that or not. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. And I got told off recently because I wrote on a, Instagram post like it's time fucking quit your job join the rebellion yeah. and immediately someone in the comments is like it's all right for you to say that me, 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 me. you know it's not like normal people it's like okay so just to get the record straight like I started doing this work I had less and less time to spend on clients work I actually whilst I whilst I was trying to get put in prison on remand by breaking my bail terms three or four times in a week told one of my clients that I'd gone on a silent retreat so that they wouldn't contact me <laughs> <laughs> and then was partly sort of praying that we didn't actually get any press coverage in case <laughs> they saw it um so I'd like you know put some of my relationships with with like quite short-term clients on like in in jeopardy I knew that there was a risk that my university even though it was an art school may not understand and may not be hmm. interested Supportive, yeah. in in it and may not think that it's like okay to do which could mean that I've like basically got no career left in education and I thought well well that'll be a shame then if it happens won't hmm. it 
but, but you um, there's s- like it's more interest it's more interesting to to do this than to like sit with like a minuscule amount of comfort and security that you have from being like a precariously employed lecturer mm. you know and ultimately now i mean i've i've had i've been asked to go and teach so much more than ah, there you go, <laughs> than yeah. before. But that's that, isn't that interesting? On different courses, yeah, it's fascinating. That's a really, really important message because I think, the isn't risk it? is just like. Well, the risk is fitting in, and you're like everybody else. So if you just take it from a business point of view, your ability to compete is not very good yeah. because you're doing the same as everybody else. But when you stand out from the crowd, things happen. Yeah, and but but also like if you're. If you've gone through like thinking that you're willing to go to jail for some time, if you really like think about what it's worth to not be complicit in the destruction of life itself, the only intelligent haha, life that we know that exists in the whole universe, then, I mean, like, what? who gives a shit? Like... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, what? what's it? I mean, it would be probably really horrible to go to jail. But I know a lot of us who, like, went through quite a lot of effort trying to imagine whether or not we were willing to take that kind of level of risk. And we knew when we started the rebellion that that was something that we all had to be prepared to do, Mm. you know? And and it sounds as though you would have regretted not doing it. And that was... It was just too interesting to not do it. Yeah, and you, basically, so, yeah. so you, you wouldn't have wanted to have got to, I don't know, sixty, and thought, ah, oh, yeah, I wish I'd just taken that step. Yeah, we, we've uh, we've only just touched the surface of um, how your world has interplayed with climate breakdown, mm. and I think I understand some of. Um, what must have built up in order for you to be prepared to go to jail for it and to and to and to make this your life's work what i'm keen to explore or just make sure that we give you enough of a platform around is um so many it seems to me that so many people are pretty ignorant of what the science says how do you see that and how how do you believe people should show up in their day-to-day life to be on the right side of it or to make decisions that are more in line with what is actually happening? I don't know, man. I don't, I mean, it's like, it's a really big ask for people to actually face this thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, and it's really challenging to ask people to face it with with sort of, I don't know, with a readiness for compassion because the more you learn about it, the more you'll understand that like there are relatively small numbers of people who've caused us to come to this place, who've like wielded the most power mm. um, in in terms of like steering us this way. But in terms of getting people to come to it, I, I think it's, I think it's like there's a there's a real need for people to uh, to face up to the fact that they need to engage in some forgiveness and that is going to be 
forgiveness for themselves as well as forgiveness for the people that sort of appear to have played a much bigger part yeah. in bringing us here than they have. And well, it's for them as well because if they forgive themselves, yeah. And also for the complexity of it, you know, there's the complexity of all the systems that sort of interrelate. When you look at the economic system, our political systems, all of the natural systems and the way that they all meet and the fact that we're sort of in this moment where I think I think there is like almost no chance that that we don't live through catastrophe. Mm. Um whether that comes within my lifetime or it comes within like my nephews or my godchildren's lifetime or whatever. Um, it's within like one to two generations. And it is hard to get people to show up to to it, as you say. And I don't know if it's ever gonna be everyone that that will, because you know, the social science says that you have these people called upstanders and you have these people called bystanders and you have this sort of like middle bit mm. in the middle and it's mm. a very basic shaped bell curve. And that's it. That's how the world is. Like some people will do stuff. Some people won't do anything. Mm. Some people will see someone getting mugged and just walk off and go, shit, that looks bad. And other people will see that and they can't walk past it. They can't not intervene in it, you know. And, and it just seems to me that there's something of a sort of like spectrum of people out there that like are going to respond in different ways to this, which is why we've set out in XR to always like try and mobilize those people that are mobilizable, mm. which is important to like, I don't know, somehow give us some, give us some sense of hope basically that those people are there because the social science says they're there mm. and they, and if you get them all, then they're enough to create the change suggested by the literature. I mean, none of it's like scientific, but it helps if it sounds like it is a bit, because then you think it's like sort of worth doing rather than just like, some mental idea that will never work <laughs> are you able um, to so when you were talking earlier about the performance art work it was you, you used the word joy and it sounded almost it sounded uplifting it sounded fun even though it had meaning to it and it had purpose to it yeah um if we are heading into a catastrophe right and as hard as it is as you just said to come to terms with that that's scientifically an outcome mm. then we can either go there and feel bad about it or we can go there and kind of enjoy it and mm. and get the best it's almost like if you were told you've got three years left to live what are you going to do we're well, probably going to go and enjoy yourself as much as possible yeah well that's um, the academic jen bendel has written a piece for our for that book this is not a drill called doom and bloom yeah and it's about that you know it's about the fact that like humanity has a terminal prognosis so you could face the truth of it and find yourself very much more in love with what is than you were before um and i think for some people who go through a kind of existential <laughs> experience of understanding this, the times that we're in that is certainly possibility mm. But it's not, it's kind of like not as personal as having a terminal diagnosis, right? It's like some other people have got a much sooner diagnosis than you and you're going to watch them all try and like 
survive when it becomes extremely difficult and arguably like hundreds of thousands of people are already dying every year because of the condition that we've put the planet in mm. and that will continue it's my understanding that south africa is now entering a, a, a sort of permanent period of drought it's australia the same other parts of the world are, are going there we're going to lose the arctic like millions of people are going to have to like leave the arctic regions when when the, the area that they live in becomes unstable and that's coming soon and where we are in the uk we're going to watch a lot of, well we are watching some people i mean people i think in in the western world think that they can just sit and watch it unravel mm. um because we've separated ourselves so much from everybody else and from the natural world that we think we can sort of like sit tight here and just watch it all go to shit somewhere else and you know it's not very pleasant but ultimately some people that we find it very easy to be rude about politicians in our countries will build walls will write nasty immigration policy will do things which we think is disgusting but will further preserve our quality of what life our way of life in a way which is like going to continue to give people this sort of like misconception that it's not coming for you too mm. do you know what i mean and so that's what we've been trying to it's not the right messaging to use, which is why I think a lot of people who talk, who, who've been campaigning on global justice and different sort of internationalist issues for a long time find challenging about our messaging that we've gone out to people and said, this is coming home. It's going to affect your kids. And of course, that's not cool because mm. if it's going to like wipe out Bangladesh because they're going to go underwater and nobody will be able to hardly live in massive areas of a country or island states are going to disappear completely. Of course we should go out on the streets because of that, but people don't, do they? And when you say it's going to destroy the lives of your children, then they do. They do get out on the streets. And so it's a kind of painful facing up to the reality of like human beings as well and finding out what works mm. is that we've, we've taken this message out that it's it's here now and it's gonna come home faster and quicker and more frighteningly than you've than you've realized and here's why and they're decommissioning a village in wales by 2025 and people are not getting paid out for their insurance for floods and we knew a long time ago that the main thing the uk would experience first massive flooding increased risk of floods more frequent floods more frequent heat waves droughts problems with water supply We've had wildfires last year in the fucking winter <laughs> in Scotland. I mean, like, you know, th this is, it, it is here, but like, people are not, people have not really realised until very recently how much it's like gonna, gonna be with us really, really soon. And I think the more that people see the suffering at home and they face up to the reality of it, perhaps the more people can sort of wake up to to the terrifying reality of, of where we are with it and stuff but it yeah it's been it's been really interesting and and quite unpleasant working I, on <laughs> working on this project i was just thinking as you were explaining that about how we talked about this before we started recording about how the form for what you know why are more people not waking up taking action um even aware of some of the things that you just talked about and we can talk about the role of the media we can talk about all sorts of different things but ultimately that's because the majority of the people in the western world it's quite it's kind of easy to be comfortable and so with comfort comes ignorance and ignorance is bliss and all the rest of it so there isn't a motivation so much for those people to do anything different because they're just sitting there being quite comfortable so i wonder if maybe a step towards discomfort 
in any respect is a is a good step in the right direction for people you know and you you've you've got very good at being dis uh, uncomfortable um you might take that for granted but i d I, th I wonder if maybe it's as simple as that like what what does it take for for people to just get a bit more uncomfortable in life um well i think there's discomfort but there's also i mean yeah people are f people are extremely comfortable in this part of the world but then let's have like quite extreme poverty mm. and spiraling inequality mm. and about five billionaires that own the media and do you think <laughs> like do you, do you think they are comfortable do you think people are comfortable i well that's the that's that's yeah i was i was you just um weren't weren't there for a minute um <laughs> Making sure, mentally, we don't get, making sure we don't get kicked <laughs> out the room. No, you, I was, I was talking about uh, people, people waking up to this, and that if an ignorance is bliss, and if people are there in a kind of comfortable existence, then there isn't a reason, there isn't a motivation for people to act differently. And but so, the, one <coughs> step away from comfort is a good step in. Yeah, comfort. well, and 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 the other thing is that you know when you get into bed and you're tired it feels really comfortable but the longer you stay there the less comfortable it gets and so it, it it was comfortable at the beginning when you first got in and you don't notice how uncomfortable it's getting That's right yeah and the only way to stop the discomfort is to sort of get up yeah yeah exactly <laughs> to 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 trick your brain you know your your brain is playing tricks with you mm. you're not comfortable anymore you're uncomfortable <clears throat> and and the way to mix it up is to to get up get out yeah i mean i've been asking myself really what is it that's so successful about the way people are separated and detached from one another and pitted against each other mm that's so successful, like when there's so many more of us mm. and there's so few of them, if it's oh, an us and them we, thing, you know. It's because we've been sold a story. People just, you know, n not thinking day to day that by going to work, they're making someone else rich who's done fuck all. Like that, even that is <laughs> blows my mind that mm. people don't go, hang on a minute, I don't like I don't, this is totally uncool by the way like Jeff Bezos or mm. wh <laughs> whoever owns this huge company that I'm working for you know like yeah. I mean what the fuck mm. and I don't know I don't I just don't understand it I'm afraid I don't I don't have the answers to how it's how it works but I, so but I, successfully but I think that's partly listening to your story is because you've got used to discomfort it, you know what it's like and you know you can get through it and actually what you're doing now in terms of the what may seem the the uncomfortableness of it mm. is nothing compared to what you've the experiences you've well, had it's also discomfort's quite comfortable for me yeah mm. that's right yeah. absolutely yeah you're yeah. used to, you're used to it and in actual fact that's why i was interested in you know talking to you about what's it like at home and you know and you're you know 
and now learnt you're a domestic goddess. <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite, but um, I make quite good curry. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's 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 having that 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 balance, and certainly if you're you you can't you can't just be comfortable. Well, if there's one if there's if there's one thing this conversation's pointing at, it's that yeah, com- comfortable is is well we can't we can't stay comfortable no like it, it's not it's not it's no, not a real I, I state if we, sit, if we stay in these chairs that we're sitting in now for for very much longer they'll become uncomfortable yeah yeah but and also like the, as long as we notice it your life is just like a series of really really uncomfortable things and i'm quite sure that being born is like a horrendous mm. experience like that's t- you know you sort of <gasps> start breathing start screaming everything's really super bright what the fuck's going on you know like yeah all of this uh, you imagine like everything you go through from being born to being like a young adult to going into adulthood and then the world that we've created for ourselves to live in which is just like really traumatizing that like actually it's just like it's just like a horrendous experience with with like bits of joy throughout it mm. that you sort of get told to chase after, but you can't actually catch them. They're like, they're there when they're there and you just have to like learn to enjoy them because the other things that, that you, that you get in, in the balance are, are grief are like, you know, great, great sadness. And then, and then eventually you go into a state of like deterioration and then you die. Like there's nothing comfortable about any of that. It's like really uncomfortable. And if you focus on it in a way which allows you to accept that, then then I think you can understand that like things, you know, things come and go. Like nothing stays the same forever. No, that's Do you fine. know what I mean? Like no matter how harsh or how sad you something is that, that you go through, it like you don't even feel the same the next day. No. You know. Never mind the day after that or the week after that. I mean, everything, it's just like changes all the time. So it's a sort of like also a kind of rejection of our own mortality, which I think allows people to sink into this state where they think it's possible to be comfortable all the time because they think it's possible to hold something in a steady state and they also think it's possible to pretend Mm. that you're not in a permanent state of either growth or degradation. Mm. You know, you're either like growing up or you're dying. That's like, that's what life is. So, but you, when you pretend it's not that, then then you can pretend all kinds of other things too. Mm. What's the what's the best possible outcome that you can imagine? What, what do you hope for? Well, I don't really like hope. So <laughs> I think hope makes people disappointed. So I've never liked it very much. I don't have a good relationship with it. Um, I guess, well, the other day someone said to me, write a story about what happens in XR. So you've done something now for the last like year and a half or whatever, and here it is, and what happens next that means that like the best thing happens. Mm. And my my story said um, that there would be um, an entrenched conservative government for the next five years that made everything worse that um, destroyed international cooperation along with Donald Trump, along with other leaders that refused to to help each other, that the droughts and the heat waves here and water shortages hit 
and eventually through the sort of challenging times that people in the developed world ended up living in the um, necessity of more localized and more people powered politics became an inevitability and people rose up and took control of their local areas and totally disempowered the state and then we had a conversion to participatory democracy mm. and then things got a bit better but the world was quite fucked so, so, <laughs> so you're you're, no. li you're you're looking for That's a rock it. bottom for <laughs> you think we need to get to rock bottom quickly I'm, before we re so I'm, we can react quickly i'm frightened that we need to hit a rock bottom yeah and i think there's something for me when i look at the history of this country and think about like the birth of the nhs mm. and the welfare state and all of that stuff i mean that came out of a period of the most immense social like national scale trauma um and i don't know whether it would be possible to build something that's that beneficial to without having everyone the, the rock bomb without being in that state of collective trauma and really feeling for each other because it's my understanding that at that point post-war people went okay i'm being kind to well, myself and people around well, me it's right interesting now. isn't it because we, we definitely need something to bring us together mm. Yeah, you know we we need something. We need to get on board. The same thing. Yeah, I I can't see many things, other than the future of our planet. That have the ability to bring us together, yeah. and actually listen to each other, and that 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 seems to be really listen. And like you said earlier, forgive ourselves, forgive other people for whatever mistakes we've made in the past, and say okay. This is the turning point. Let's work together, yeah. and it doesn't. And not, not worry too much about whether the science is true or not. Yeah, right. Just, just say that this is something that we can work on together, and enjoy that process of being a more together community. Do you feel yeah. like at its heart, that's what Exile is trying to trying to do? Yeah, I think it's looking to create a sort of paradigm shift. Mm. But the, the, so, the but the problem with with the with activism, and I don't really understand much about activism, but it seems to me the problem with activism is that there are there is a certain proportion of the population that it doesn't matter what it is you're being active about, people don't like extremism. And they they react against that rather than what it is you're fighting for. Yeah, well, people... No matter how important it is. People have increasingly started to critique us as an organisation, some of the people within that as individuals, and also, like, the tactics and the strategies that we've been used, where I think in April the media spoke all the time yeah, about, about the cause climate yeah, change yeah, and yeah. about biodiversity loss and because, about the fact we're in Because they've run out of stories crisis. there and they need mm. a new story. Is that, so, is that what it is? Well, I think it's partly that the mood has changed hmm. a bit because we were a bit of a novelty in April and right, now we're like keep... coming back to be annoying again and what right have you got and poor people who are trying to just live their life and da 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 so the, the narrative's shifted in in the in the sort of media conversation a, a lot around that and we've we've really got our work cut out to to steer that back on track but i think you know this country has fairly decent history of civil disobedience mm. of practical 
direct action, um, of strikes, of the poll tax rebellion. I mean, some of this is in like living memory, right? It's mm. not all about the suffragettes. Um, and so there's, there is a rich history here. People like do understand this stuff. What they don't like is seeing it happen now because it's supposed to be that thing that people did before that got us like women the vote and that was got really us where good. we are. It's <laughs> like put a statue for the person on Parliament Square and announce that they're like a great person, but they weren't fucking great person when they did it. They're in prison on hunger strike. Mm. You know, mm. they, they were doing those things. And and at the beginning when we launched Extinction Rebellion and we, we gave this talk, which was like um, heading for extinction and what to do about it, it was called. And people would have like a form to fill in at the end. Said like, would you be willing to get arrested? Help. Would you be willing to go to prison? It was like three boxes you could tick depending on your sort of le level of commitment to try and yeah. sort of try something out. And... Um, and so I think from the beginning we've we've really gone out there and asked people like what what would you be willing to do if you thought it might work if you thought yeah. it might have a chance of working um and there's quite an interesting shift that's gone on around from that time when people were looking like you know half the room would look at you like get arrested what are you talking about? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but like a tiny number of people would say, yeah, sure, I'll get arrested. Or like some people you'd meet a peace activist and they'd be like, yeah, I've been in jail three times. Fuck it, I'll do it again. Whatever, site for my grandkids. And that felt like those numbers were tiny in the rooms of people that we were meeting. And then go forward to now, you know, we talk about shifting the Overton window, shifting this like conversation, the public discourse, whatever. There was a news article a while ago where they were talking about... Um, um, people try people trying to like use um, drones to close down an airport, which is if mm. you were watching the story of Extinction Rebellion, there was a huge controversy internally. People were made to like leave the group, go and do it as a separate unit with mm. a different name, blah blah. They weren't allowed to do it as XR, but they still did it. And the person on the news, I think it's on Sky, said said about it. Yeah, so I mean, of course, we completely understand that it's fair enough to sit in the street, but this is just going too far flying a drone in the air. And it's like literally six months previous, less even, they didn't think it was fair enough to sit in the road, mm -hmm. did they? They thought it was totally not fair enough to sit in the road. So you see how this like understanding of, of, of what means, what makes a sort of like reasonable response, what you think is like a rational or a reasonable thing to do in the context of what we face. Oh. <laughs> is that for you? <laughs> Don't answer it. <laughs> it's the it's the man on the phone. Dave, draw the curtains. <laughs> um, there's so much more to talk about, Claire. And we're we're not. We've only just scratched the surface. But I feel as though um, anyone listening to this, what's been really really useful is understanding your journey in like what in in, in how you want to apply yourself in the world to things that care about and you're good at that's that's really useful stuff but i feel like people need to go find some of the things that we've talked about and then make their own decisions off the back of this where should they go what should they look for and what would you recommend people do next i would actually recommend that people look at look at the science because i know you referenced earlier that like People have gone round in circles saying, but we don't know, but we're not sure, but, but, but. 
And it's really problematic that people have wasted so much time on mm. like questioning science and that that has been funded by billions of dollars um, to encourage people to, to mistrust that information. But it's pretty much unanimous now. It's very easy to find research on it. Read David Wallace Wells' book. Yeah. Read our book. Print out information about that stuff and stick it on your wall and remember every day that that is the truth of the world that we're living in right now. Mm. And there isn't an opportunity for us to leave <laughs> the planet. The, the richest people on earth are trying to work out how to do that. They're very welcome to go to Mars as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think they'd be, do the world a favor if a handful of them got on a, got on a, spaceship and just went out there and stayed there but um but uh, you know there is no escape from this and so this is going to hit people that deserve it the least the hardest and the worst and the fastest and it already is but equally like it's coming for everyone because we all need a planet and that's and that's what people need to i think really come to terms with is that like we are talking about the destruction of the conditions for life, mm. complete destruction of those conditions. We don't, we don't know what a four degrees warmer planet actually looks like. And I know people have been trying to find recently some models that, that show what it would be like. And so far, nobody's found any. I don't know if the scientific community have any. If anyone's listening, please do feel free to send them our way if you've got any. But we've got a big, big team of scientists who come together around this stuff and we can't seem to find out that many specifics about what that looks like but on a business as usual trajectory that's where we're going to be by the end of the century and carbon emissions went up again this year biodiversity loss is like getting faster and worse with you know it's an it's an extinction crisis life is just dying everywhere all around us and so facing that reality is probably the first thing that people need to do and like and that means facing your own mortality at the same time and getting to grips with the fact that like you might be part of the last generation to have such a nice life frankly you're definitely the last generation to like think that you're passing on a better life to your kids because that's never going to be the case ever again mm. so philosophically we have no clue how to deal with that because it's like trying to inverse the sort of psychological reality that we live in as, as people and as families. And then and then the last thing I'd say is that I don't know when this is coming out, but on um, January the 23rd, we're going to host a conference with Sir David King, hopefully, who used to be the chief science advisor to our government. So he's a very credible person. And we've asked loads and loads of other scientists to chip in on this, to hold a press conference on four degrees Great. warming. Yeah, And we will invite Piers Morgan and... Nigel Farage and all of the people who've given us the most hard time in the media and say, here's a place where we're gathering to, together some of the most credible people in science. And given that this is where we're going, what's it look like? Yeah, perfect. So look out for that as well, because I think that could be quite a serious wake up call for mm. people as well. Thank you, Claire. And I, 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 I say that on multiple levels. Thank you for spending the time, but thank you for waking up and showing other people that it's possible because it's got to start somewhere. Thanks, man. That's it, folks. For show notes, 
head over to the website at www.lifedonedifferent.ly where you'll find links, a quick summary, and you can also explore other conversations. If you're enjoying this podcast, then please tell your friends, give us a good rating, and remember to subscribe. We're also really keen to hear your feedback, so please do let us know what you think and give us your ideas over on Twitter. You can tweet us at LifeDoneDiff, that's double F. 